Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week we are joined by polling expert and founding partner at Echelon Insights, Kristen Soltis Anderson, and the editor of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. Don't forget to tell us where you're from. We thank you for supporting uh, our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, we've got some great guests this week, but uh, first we have to talk about the bad, the devastating news. Uh, Hurricane Ida devastated your state. Describe to non-Louisiana listeners how bad it is and how long it's going to take to recover. All right. Well, well, thank you. The first part, let's get the good news out of the way. All right. The United States spent $14.1 billion building a new flood protection levy system in New Orleans. It worked. All right. To all these people that are not understand the benefit of public infrastructure, I'm just dying for when the economist economist does, and this is going to happen, to say, without but for that, we would have had this. Yeah. All right. Which, which you don't see as images of people on, on rooftops, anything like that. It's it's devastating. It, a couple things to keep in mind. I'm, I'm going to try to run through them uh, pretty well. It, it, there's an article in the Atlantic by a guy named Robinson Mayer that's quite good. We had almost we had so little warning time from the from the time this became a name storm. It was 76 hours before a landfall. From the time it became a hurricane, there was 60 hours. You couldn't if you couldn't put across any kind of effective evacuation at time. Preparation, it, when everybody's trying to buy the same thing at the same time, you, you can imagine that what happens. And that storm hit in you know one of the warmest northern gulfs that you can imagine. With a, a, I'm sure a, a result of climate. It, it hit on the. And just remember this: whenever you see a hurricane. You you you'd want to be you don't want to be on the right side of the eye. You don't want to be on the east side of, of a hurricane moving north, and you don't want to be on the north side of a hurricane moving west. All right, that that's basic. We were New Orleans was on the wrong side of a powerful 150 mile an hour wind category four hurricane. It we've also we lost enormous amount of land between where that storm hit and where New Orleans metropolitan area is. And it hit with rising sea levels and as important, most people think even more importantly, subsidence. The land is starting to sink. So very little was going our way in this storm. Very little. Uh, Which is terrible because they're trying to get the lights back on and we'll go through the utility towers falling down. And it's it's hot and miserable down there this time of year, and I'm I'm afraid that you know we didn't get to evacuate that many people. I, I'm really afraid there's going to be a high level of frustration. But so far, people are behaving well, and you can send <clears throat> your money to the, my recommendation is the Greater New Orleans Foundation. It's run by a guy named Andy Koppel, who was Mitch's chief administrative officer, who was. Did the same thing, and it, it's a very it's a it's a very good charity, 
and they know who is good, and they dispense the money around the, the New Orleans metropolitan area. So that that would be my my recommended charity to to try to help. And remember, all of this was on top of a, a, a region suffered one of the worst regions for the pandemic when that storm hit. So this was a catastrophic event. Uh, the, the good news is is the the flood protection system works, and the good news is we have a damn good governor. Well, I was going to say, you have a, you know, compared to Katrina, your governor just was, uh, I mean, he, he, he was shining throughout this. And, and there were also were some local officials. I thought the mayor of Baton Rouge, Sharon Broom, just watching her on television, seemed in charge. There's Cynthia Lee Chang, the president of Jefferson County, and Republican Senator Bill Cassidy. There weren't very many people who rose to that occasion, as I recall, at least during Katrina. Well, I mean, it is, and uh, Cynthia Lee Shang is a Republican president of Jefferson Parish, and it's good, and I, I like for the region that she's kind of front and center because you have all of this anti-Asian nonsense in the country, which is about as fucking dumb as you can imagine. And you're right, she, she's performed well, and, and, I, and I think they're performing pretty well on the ground. It's just hard to perform well on the ground. There's not much you can do. And, you know, one of the problems we had Katrina is we were underwater. I mean, it, it, this is, it's not the same event as Katrina. It was sort of, if anything, it was more damaging to the city. But the lack of, the fact that we weren't on rooftops, uh, made it did help make people look, look a little better. And, James, you know, one of the main I, I got to give of, George President Bush credit for that. I mean, he pushed the, it out. For, for, for the Congress did too. Congress yep. did too. But, yep. you know, it's, it's always this anti-government crap you hear. This is an instance, and I'm not seeing enough of this, that it worked, right? Yeah. We set out, we did something, we paid for it, and lo and behold, but you can't blame anybody, you, you know, for the storm, I guess it could certain in part. I, I, I know climate had something to do with it, but you know we, we've had storms before before this. But it, that was a that was a that was a hopeful, you know, after some nuclear holocaust, a, a cockroach call, crawls out. Well, this this was better than that. <laughs> James, one of the one of the main stories, debacles, if you will, of Katrina was the performance of FEMA, or at least the head of it, Brownie, as we were affectionately remember him or not, not affectionately remember him. Any sense in the first three or four days how FEMA's performed this time? It's it's kind of hard to tell because they're still trying to assess what's going on. But I, I think I don't hear any complaints, you know, and, and, and generally when FEMA does a good job, you always hear about when they do a bad job. Yeah, because there's so you know, one wants to say, well, FEMA did a, a good job, but but the governor has been very, uh, he's been praised the federal assistance and response regularly, and and I, I think justifiably. And if he didn't think it was good, he'd have said something. Right. You know, James, so I, I, I think the absence of news on FEMA is good news. Well, that's good. Uh, I hate to bring this up, but what's the future hold? More storms? Oh, of course. For every, I mean, we just happened to draw a bad hand the next, the last two years, but everything is exposed. Everything from from Cape Cod to to Brownsville, Texas, in this country, and the the Colorado State people, who are quite good, by the way, you know, think they've upped their prediction for the number of Category Three and above storms here. I mean, I 
I hope so how many? How many this share. season? Do, do, do you I think a, there. I think there were three to six, and now they're kind of four to eight. But that's a, they're gonna be, you know that make landfall. But we already got one. And and one other thing to remember: it's very important. The peak day of hurricane season is September the tenth. There is a lot, as we say, there's a lot of football left to play here, folks. A lot. And we got hit, and they had a Category four in Apalachicola, Panama City, Florida, in late, like October 28th, a couple of years ago. And that's almost unheard of. We had a, I had a, I got a direct hit in Mississippi on October 28th by Category 2 last year. So, it, it, yes, there are going to be more storms. That's inevitable. Well, uh, let's hope, you know, that they, that they aren't anywhere near as severe as this and then Everyone from the governor on down continues to provide the leadership because it's necessary. Right. And I oh, just hope, need it. I hope those poor people get a lot of help. Those poor people who are affected by this. There's so many get a lot of help uh, in the next couple of days and weeks. And, uh, and just know that it's coming. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, look, I was in the Shenandoah Valley, Interstate 81, and it was noticeable the number of utility trucks that were headed south. You know, it really. Well, it's it's it's. I mean, this is so mild, but it's raining like you know the residual rain is pouring down in Washington right, right. now. Right, I'm sitting in what in the old town Alexandria looking yeah. at the rain now. Yeah, but uh, th- well, th- there's uh, more we, we you know James told you where to send any contributions you can. Uh, I think it's something that everybody should do whatever they can because those people uh, really are suffering oh. and they don't oh. deserve it. Um, James, uh, one more topic. Uh, Afghanistan. Uh, our longest war ended. Uh, Joe Biden got a lot of criticism. I think some of the early, some of the visa questions early on, some of the lack of early preparation were justified, but they did a remarkable job in getting 100 and, I don't know, 250,000 people out. Uh, and uh, this war should have ended a long time ago, but it's good that it ended now. I, I recommend reading Josh Marshall, a talking points memo, because he has a, a somewhat different take that I, I, I agree with. And I also suggest reading The Onion, all right? And, and, and when a piece is that brilliant and makes that kind of point, it, 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 it really goes to something. And when you see Fox News and the mainstream media agree on something, you, you know it's got to be wrong, all right? That's got to be wrong. And I look. I, Any time that you execute, you lose a war. My, my general point is, yeah. You go, of course, you look bad. Okay. And and they're now parading all the military equipment through Kandahar. That's what happens when you win a war. We lost the war. And by the way, this was a war that was supported literally by every institution in the United States, and continued to support the war after it was evident to anybody that it was a disaster. Well, let me it pick all, up on that and, and give you a reading recommendation even better than the two that you just recommended. I have just read the book, The Afghanistan Papers, by Craig Whitlock of the Washington Post. And he had access to all of the inspector general's interviews. I mean, we're talking about well over 400 over 20 years. It is devastating. These administrations from Bush through Obama and Trump knew this war wasn't rentable. The generals lied to us. The great David Petraeus, the media icon, 
his private assessments versus his public assessment. There was only one general. If you read the Afghanistan papers, there was only one general that really was telling the truth, who was in charge over there, and that was David McKernan. And you know what happened to him, James? He was fired. Oh, fired, of course. So, so basically, course. you know, if you anybody who has any questions about this, read the Afghanistan papers. It makes for really, really compelling reading. Uh, it, it, this is my point for people. It, when, and everybody feels compelled to say, well, the exit was botched. That ain't the problem here, all right? That's re- and I think Biden just said, we're getting out of here. To hell with it. To hell with everything. But, but, but that, that allows the Petraeuses of the world, that allows all of the columnists, all of the everybody in the world, the, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations, it allows them to divert attention from what the real tragedy of this is. That's my complaint with it. I, well, I, I don't know if there's a read, good way to lose a war. Well, that's why they should read the Afghanistan paper. Yeah, I've read when about you, it. I'm, when you here. read that, it provides all the context you need. And the next time you watch a David Petraeus or some of the other foreign policy establishments, just go back uh, uh, to what they were saying. Right. Ryan Corker, we lack strategic patience. Oh, my God. 20 years. Yeah. You know. I, I, I mean, it, it, and it's not like, you know, if you what, what do they say? If you fool me once, shame on you. You fool me twice, shame on me. It wasn't like Vietnam is ancient history. In probably the Iraq War is utter, there's a, a, a piece in I think it's New York Magazine that goes through what an utter disaster that place is, and how many people we killed, and how many Iraqis died, and everything else. In 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 all you hear is people saying. Well, they didn't inform the, the French about pulling out. Or we, we, we should have, you know, people say, well, you should Bagram Air Force Base. Well, that has an eight-mile perimeter. 40, you know, miles take, from, 40 miles from Kabul. Right, right. I, but but, but the, the time, you know, two years from now, somebody could write a paper on how we could have executed the, the, the defeat 10% better. But, but right now, my complaint is... There's more focus on the, you know, the, the the necessary exit than it is on the 20 years of bullshit and lies and and people covering asses every way that they possibly can. Well, one and of the not going to be any accounting here. Well, when you look at the Afghanistan papers and then you go back and look at the Pentagon papers, the parallels are absolutely eerie. I'm a great believer in politics and government. When your government repeatedly lies to you, however, it undermines any, well, we any gotta, trust. And that, we that, get that this is guy the, on the show. That is the big story of this. He's terrific. Sure we will. Okay, we will, we will be back. Hey, James, we fancy ourselves as political hotshots, but today we have the A-team. Amy Water, editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report and podcast host, and a Monday regular on, what's the name of that television program again, James? The PBS NewsHour with Judy Woodruff. She succeeded a legend, Charlie Cook, who was irreplaceable by anyone other than Amy. Kristen Soltis Anderson is the most reliable Republican pollster in America. Kristen, I just hope that hasn't wrecked you with all of your clients. She developed <laughs> what a great jinx. <laughs> a special expertise on young voters. She founded Echelon Insights, wrote a book on millennial voters, and is a frequent guest on numerous public affairs shows and podcasts. 
Hey, let me ask you both. Let's look ahead, and I realize the peril of long-term prognostications. But a year from now, COVID has receded. Uh, America has mostly opened up, but it's still more serious than the flu. Most economists and Wall Street firms got it right. Robust economy, unemployment around 3.5%. Taliban reverted to its brutality. Women, women's rights have been totally rolled back but there's been no serious terrorist incidents from there. If that were the environment, would it favor Democrats or Republicans? Uh, let me start with you, Amy. Oh, I get yeah. this one first, Al. Thank you. Well, well, first of all, uh, you know, I'm honored to be with the legends. That's Kristen of first, course. of course. <laughs> but then then you, Al, and, and James. Um, but look, I, you all have seen this as as well uh, as anybody else, which is we seem to be living in an era, this has been true for the last about 10 years, where when things are going really well for the president or the direction of the country, the president's numbers do better, but they aren't breaking through to the partisans on the other side. You're not seeing the other side give the party, the other party credit for it. Independence We'll, we'll side a little bit more with the party in power if things are going well. But what you're not seeing is much of a honeymoon for either uh, party, even when things go well. If I am the Democrats right now, what I need to see is not that Joe Biden is going into the midterms. I, if I were Democrat running next year, I'd love to see Joe Biden in the 60s, but he's not going to get there. I don't I don't think we're going we're going back to those days where we saw those kinds of numbers with uh, Bill Clinton or with George H.W. Bush. Um, instead, I think what you need to see if if all of that is correct, Al, is that uh, Biden is somewhere above 50 percent, looking basically like he did on Election Day in 2020, closer to 52 percent approval rating would be better. That is not enough necessarily for Democrats to see gains, but it will prevent them from losses and could mean that they hold on uh, to the Senate. Kristen, your take? In a normal election, Republicans would be favored because of the fact that they're the party out of power. Um, you have Re reapportionment that's giving Republicans a little bit of an advantage. There's going to be redistricting happening in places, you know, in every state, uh, places like Texas, Republicans are likely to fare pretty well. So there are a lot of things sort of structurally and historically that would favor a decent election for Republicans. Um, but, you know, the, the scenario you you painted is one that's got a lot of big question marks, right? You, what you've seen over the last few weeks is that President Biden's job approval has fallen, and it hasn't just fallen for one reason. His job approval around COVID used to actually be up in the 60s, like what, what Amy was talking about, you know, the goal for his overall job approval to have it in the 60s. Well, that's where his COVID job approval was. But as the Delta variant has spread and as Americans have sort of begun to, to bristle at some more of the, 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 the confusion that they're seeing coming out of things, whether it's the CDC or what do we do about masks? And this is becoming more and more fraught. Those numbers have fallen for Biden um, at the same time that his numbers on foreign policy, which don't get checked as often, but are now down in sort of the low third or pardon me, low 40s. Um, and his job approval on the economy has pretty much tracked right with his overall job approval right now. It's hovering, I think, in the, the high 40s. So if the economy is doing great, um, if Democrats in Congress pass 
all of this legislation, they spend a ton of money and Americans don't have any kind of fiscally conservative backlash to that, um, then Democrats might be able to avoid some of that historical trend. But I think that's that's a pretty big if. I think the big X factor here is Donald Trump is no longer president. But to what extent is he casting a shadow over this upcoming midterm? In 2018, Democrats did very well because they got all the upsides of Donald Trump being president and Republicans got all the downsides. Um, you know, Democrats were very motivated to send a message that they did not like Donald Trump. Trump. But Republicans, those voters who are part of their coalition, but are really only motivated to turn out when Trump himself is on the ballot, they stayed home. So I guess the question then is, does that persist? If Donald Trump's not actually president, can Democrats get anything close to the kind of enthusiasm and turnout that they got four years ago? Meanwhile, are Republicans somehow able to convert some of those Trump-only voters into people who turn out in stranger, more uh, non-presidential elections and nevertheless vote Republican? Well, we have a couple short, shorter term tests. And let me ask you both. One uh, in less than two weeks is the California recall. And then two months later is the Virginia governor's race. What's your assessment uh, of both of those and the implications? Kristen first and then Amy. I think the Virginia governor's race will tell us more than the California recall, if only because the California recall, it's just so strange. Um, certainly, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, if Governor Newsom, his, his popularity has taken a hit as a result of whether we're talking about the French laundry incident or what have you. You know, there are plenty of people in California that aren't fans of his, but I don't know that suddenly... Governor Larry Elder happening in California tells us a lot beyond <laughs> California has a very strange system for how it handles recalls of, of, of its governors. Um, but I do think the Virginia race is interesting because there you have a number of these dynamics that are going to be a big factor in the midterm in play. What do you do about these growing suburbs around Washington, around Richmond? Are Republicans able to bring those voters back into their coalition with a candidate who tries to present himself as much more sort of conventional Republican, um, but of course had to say enough nice things about Trump in the primary to where that's going to be a challenge. Um, you also, he's run as a, one of his big issues in his campaign is pushing back on things like critical race theory in schools. That's something that Republicans have kind of been testing out in a variety of, of messages around the country. Does that wind up working? Is this something that suburban parents, they might not love Donald Trump, but they really are worried about you know, what's my kid being taught in schools? And that's something that Republicans benefit from. These are things that will all get put to the test, I think, a little bit in Virginia. Amy, do you do you agree with any of that? I I, I totally agree with all those things. I think the margins are going to be what we talk about, y'all, right? So if Biden won uh, Virginia by 10 points, what's the margin in the McAuliffe-Youngkin um, race? Um, is it half? Is it two points? Right. Those are the sorts of numbers that if I'm a Democrat in a state that Biden won by 10 and now you're only winning it by two, that is not great uh, as you look ahead to 2020 and the, or 2022 and the kind of states you need to win in order to hold on to the Senate like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Nevada, New Hampshire. Um, those are all much less Democratic leaning than Virginia. So I think you will get a a host of hand-wringing stories from Democrats. You're going to hear a lot of, oh my gosh, this could be a wave election coming from Republicans. Um, California, again, the margin matters, the turnout matters. Look, what's fascinating, you're right, uh, Kristen, the whole 
thing of recall is ridiculous. Um, it shouldn't even be competitive, given the advantages that Democrats have, both in registration and in money being spent. N- National Republicans aren't spending any money on this at all. It's it's basically a hodgepodge of single uh, candidates and some other groups that are spending a little bit of money. The Newsom forces are spending them two to one or even more in some in some parts of the state. But um, it's going to be a a show, as uh, uh, Kristen alluded to earlier, of enthusiasm. What does it take to get Democrats out to vote in a year where Donald Trump's not on the ballot? It is telling that both Newsom in California, Tara McAuliffe in Virginia, are both painting their opponents as Trump-aligned Republicans who are going to do crazy things. They're they're anti-vaxxers. They're going to take away abortion rights. They don't believe in the Constitution. They want to, you know, blah, 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 fill in the blank. Um, How effective is that in getting voters to the polls? We're going to have two really good tests of that. And, um, you know, we'll see what the what the results are. Democrats, I would say, are still Democrats are still favored in both of those. But as I said, the margin is what I'm really looking James. at. James. So, uh, uh, yeah, but of course, I'll ask you first. Well, I'll ask Amy first because Al saw it at Purdue, all right? So the great <laughs> polling failure of 2020, which it, it seemed to me there's a lot of validity to, but I was very involved in Georgia, both in the November election and the January election, and polling couldn't have been any better. I mean, it's just a, it's a point at which you, you, you win a race by 50,000 votes. And, but every every poll, or, or Biden wins the state by, you know, 12,000, that totally comported what I, I saw across a, a bevy of private polls. Uh, but yet what I, saw, what I saw in the rest of the country, in a lot of other places in the country, what was definitely Republicans overperformed from the polling expectation. Do, do you mm-hmm. have any – help me out on this because I've I, I, I remained confused. <laughs> my, my answer will be pretty unsatisfying. Um, and in part, the that's because the industry, the American Association for Public Opinion Research, it is like the body of pollsters of all types, from, from government mm. agencies to political pollsters like me, um, trying to solve this problem. And they put out a report, and the answer was – we don't really know, which was pretty scary because um, I was really waiting for APOR to give me a good answer. Um, and yeah. and the answer was a, kind of a shrug. What's so scary for the polling world right now is exactly what you said about actually the polls in the Georgia runoff were pretty close. Um, if the polls had all been off and had all been off in the same direction by about the same margin, Okay, that's fixable. That's a clue. You can solve the crime. You've you've got evidence to help you figure out what what caused the the issue here. But when you've got polls in Georgia that are pretty good, but polls in Florida that were a little bit off, when you've got polls in Arizona that were pretty good, but polls in Texas that were pretty off. I mean, you've got it it's not as though like you could in 2016 where you could say, "Ah, the most of the polling error was confined or was was worst in these upper Midwest states. You were undercounting non-college educated white voters. So just make sure you're getting enough of them and you'll be fine. This the scary nightmare scenario for pollsters is that Donald Trump saying that polls are fake news 
became something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the very types of voters that Donald Trump was bringing into the process who are lower social trust normally wouldn't be participating in these things, but just Trump himself was uniquely really appealing, um, that he has, he's brought them into the process, but they are sitting out polls disproportionately to, say, Democratic voters who there were some studies that suggested because Democrats were more likely to be locked down, more likely to be observing COVID, uh, you know, social distancing rules, they were easier to reach for a phone poll than a Republican would have been. So some of this could be COVID strangeness. But I do worry that there is this partisan differential in social trust that is going to lead certain types of people to be left out of polls, where in the past that might not have been as big a deal because they were very unlikely voters anyways. But if Trump is bringing those folks more and more into the process, they're voting, but they're not taking polls. That's a tougher problem for pollsters to solve. Can I throw out a suggestion? I wonder how you all think about this, Christy, but I, I think about the states where the polling was the, the biggest misses. Wisconsin, I don't know what goes on there, but Wisconsin now for the second presidential election in a row, the the public polling was far off from the final result. And I and I think that speaks to Kristen's point about especially white non-college voters, where I think the samples the samples looked correct in terms of the demographic breakdowns. It's that they were getting the wrong white non-college stuff, right? They weren't getting a proper sample of those voters who chose not to take the poll. But then I look at Texas, Arizona, Florida, where the real problems were the assumptions made about the Latino vote, right? Which is Latino votes going to go up. Great. In our modeling, that means, oh, right. Biden gets 70% of Latino vote. Boom, bang, bing. Look what happens. Uh, Here's the final, you know, here's a final number except that we know that many of those, again, it's education as, um, is, a, is once again a defining factor here, but uh, more, more Latinos coming out to vote who are more low information, who are not uh, as highly educated, um, tended to vote more Republican. And that was not really something that, uh, especially for Democrats, when they were putting their modeling together, had sort of really uh, thought about, or public pollsters, especially. I know some Democratic pollsters had been raising red flags in in uh, the fall, especially in South Florida. So I do think the Latino question is one that pollsters are going to have to really start looking at, especially if you're, you're in a state with a growing uh, Latino population, or one in which if you're a Democrat, you say, well, you know, to win, we'd get get these voters out. The the other thing, uh, again, it, it is the question: uh, Is this just a Trump phenomenon? Twenty eighteen, we didn't have any surprises on election day. Yeah, I, I, I'll go. I'll get just twenty sixteen, we did. There were some of those Senate races we where the margins where Republicans' margin of victory had been underestimated. Like they thought, oh, this race is going to be well, close. That's true. Like and it wasn't really that close. Or I, I'm thinking of like Missouri, mm-hmm. Indiana. I mean, those were races where mm-hmm. I think the polls had said, oh, Donnelly yeah. may have, you know, and right. in the end, no. Yeah. Right. I, I, yeah. I, again, I'll read this, but why was Arizona as good as any polling you could have? And Nevada wasn't that good. I thought we, the Democrats were going to win Nevada by six or seven points. 
All right, it, it, you point to Wisconsin. That guy, Marquette, he's got a lot, uh, yeah, I think deservedly so. People had a lot of confidence in him. I mean, he was massively wrong. But yet, you look at Georgia and you say, well, I could have, that, that's totally within any, any political analyst. That result was hardly shocking. All right, South Carolina. I, I thought Jamie was going to come much closer. To, to, to Lindsey Graham, uh, and as did a lot of other people. Uh, I, so I, I, I don't know, and I, I, we could belabor this point, and, and I'm sure both of you have, and, and, you know, the, the one thing I will say, there's not a single analyst or poster that doesn't want to get it right. Right, they don't come I in. I appreciate you saying this. I have I to mean, remind some of my family members right. who I love dearly, but they're like, "What are you guys doing?" I'm like, it would be it's very good like, for my business to nail everything I, publicly. Trust right, me. right. It, it's like it's not like so. You know, I know I've worked with because I'm a Democrat and worked with Democratic posters. They, they almost like to come in and give you bad news. You know, I know all these Republican posters, and I, I you know, I stop and I say, hey, what's going on? Oh, God, shit, we're screwed, man. It's terrible. I, hey. Posters have, if anything, my experience with the polling industry is they have a bias toward bad news. But at any rate, I just want to make that point. Well, I, I did have <laughs> one, in terms of at least the private polling, I did have one interesting conversation with a, a prominent Republican pollster who I will keep nameless the day before the election. And I said, what am I missing? Like, what are you seeing in your private data that is getting missed publicly. And he said, one thing to keep in mind about the private data is he says, I hope my private data is wrong. Not wrong in terms of like, I'm off by 10 points, but I hope that what I tell my candidate in that last update, that they wind up outperforming it by a little. Because otherwise, what's the point of my poll? I'm supposed to be giving them strategic guidance so that they can use their last bit of resources to try to do a little bit better. And so that was, it wasn't like a preemptive defense of, of, but I, I just thought that was an interesting take on kind of the difference between private and public polling. He didn't view the role of a private pollster as my results should match up exactly with the final result. Right. I it's, thought that was an interesting yeah. take. I, I, it's just, a, it, it is interesting. And Amy, to your point about Virginia, all right, so I have exactly the same thing. What is the, the number that if you're a Democrat says, shoot, okay, that's fine. I mean, if we lose... If Terry loses, that, that that's no well, good, okay? That's bar, bar the door. door you know, right. and, There'll be panic you know, so in the streets. Gamblers have a, a over-under where you try to set the, you know, so LSU is playing UCLA, so the over-under would be 52 points, all right? So if, you, if the combined score is under 52, you win if you bet the under. If it's over 52, you win if you bet the over. If, if in So what you're trying to do, and I'll ask both of you, when you try to set a line, you want to make it as hard. The, the, the purpose is not to pre- so much to predict the outcome, but to see what number would draw as many people on either side. And I've thought a lot about Virginia, and I put the number at 3.2. <laughs> and I don't know why. I just pulled it out of my ass, okay? Not 3.3, <laughs> three, but 3.1. Not, yeah, 3. yeah I, I'll give So if, if you were, and both of you, if you were setting – the Virginia line where you would like flinch and say, it's hard for me to say I, I want to bet this way or that way. Where, where would you put it? And I'll start with you, Amy. Well, you got to start okay. with Kristen because she understands all this because she does fantasy <laughs> football. And I, 
Every time I hear these numbers about like over under, uh, okay, I'll stop. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, thank I'll you for explaining it. But but my, Kristen's one of my good favorite podcasts, she knows besides what she's about. you, esteemed gentlemen's podcast. One of my favorites is called Guess the Lines. During the NFL season, Bill Simmons does a show every Monday morning yeah. where he tries to guess what the lines for the upcoming games will be. So that's my education right. on right. Okay. these things. But, so I would set the line here at plus or minus. I would set the line at at um, two. And part of and the reason okay. why is because I think Republicans feel pretty good and I think Democrats are feeling more scared. And so that's that's kind of why, even uh, uh, though I'm not right. sure that I actually think two will be the margin, I think that's what will draw 50 percent. Right, right. right. And, and I, I guess what I'm a little bit you're right, and, and, you know, as in terms of if you look if the, you look at the result look if, if Terry loses it's a oh shit moment okay there's no doubt about that it's just and if he wins by 10,000 votes it's still a no shit moment and that that's all of it but thank you so Amy where do you go now that that Christian and I have sufficiently educated so, you so in I'm the world of gambling at, so James are you asking her about Virginia know, I, I, or are you asking her Virginia, about the Patriots I'm asking about Virginia I, know, I what, thought maybe Virginia. I thought maybe the Patriots bills uh, uh, line she was going to pick up Can I get a parlay with the the California recall <laughs> Take a bet on that I'll book you bet on anything you want but go ahead. <laughs> To me it's like can the Republican candidate do two or three points better. So if they do two or three points better, Youngkin does two or three points better than Trump somewhere at 47, 48. So let's say that I think to me, anything uh, that Democrats do, that is uh, four okay. points, right? So if a Demo- if, if if Terry wins by less than four uh, as a, Democrat, I'd be very nervous. As a Republican, I'd be pretty darn happy because you would go from 2017, nine points, 2018. Uh, I don't have the right. w- the congressional data, but I'm sure it's close to that. 2020, 10 points, and then get to go to four. Yeah, well, Oof. okay. So we got two, th- we got two, three, and four. That, that you can't get it much. You know what I mean? No. We're, we're, we're somewhere. We're straddling the target here somewhere. We're somewhere yeah, in the we got, same. We're in the same. We're some, somewhere. Albert, go ahead. What a great guess we got. Yeah, yeah, yeah let me, let me, Amy. I just want to go to one point. I'm, let me lose, revisit Wisconsin for a minute. Far worse than the Marquette poll actually was an ABC poll that showed I think Biden winning by sixteen or seventeen. But right next door in Iowa. Ann Selzer nailed it. I mean, she had it right on the mark. Yeah. Now, those states yeah, yeah, are, yeah. Are, are a bit different, yeah. I grant you, but they're not that different. Uh, she even so accurately predicted total pandemonium in the Iowa Democratic Caucus. <laughs> she, she, I mean, she, she gets it right. I work with her for 10 years. She never gets it wrong, as Kristen never gets it wrong. But, um, I mean, some of it has to do with the quality of the polls, too. Yeah. And, you know, listen, the one thing I did to make myself sane, and I and I think it's very good for, especially at a presidential year, for people to help keep their, themselves sane is to focus on two things. One, the president's job mm-hmm. approval rating. And that number correlates more closely to the election number than anything else, right? So the president's at 45%. That's likely to be where that that president will get as a national vote somewhere between 45, 47, and then look at each state and how it performs nationally compared to the the national, 
compare every state to that national number. We know Wisconsin is two or three points more Republican. So subtract a couple points, right? It, that, to me, makes a whole lot of sense um, as, a, as, a, as a better measure than focusing so much on the margin. And this is the other problem we had in 2020, which was folks would talk about the margin all the time. It's 10 points. It's 15 points. It's eight points. It's six points. Rather than saying, where is where's Biden? Where's Trump? Is Trump at 50? Is Biden at 50? The places where Biden in the polling was at 50, he won. The places where he was not, <laughs> uh, he lost. And so, you know, I, I do think that that number, the, the job approval rating number of the incumbent president, and then in the case for the challenger, it was uh, more important to look not at the margin, but at their vote. Let, let me ask, let me take you to, we mentioned Trump a lot um, in this conversation, this fascinating conversation. Kristen, um, there is a chance. I mean, beyond a remote chance, he's going to be indicted. There's also the January 6th commission uh, investigation going on. Do you see those having any impact in this polarized environment or will people just go back to their corners? I think people's opinions about Donald Trump are incredibly baked in at this point. I don't think there are a lot of people out there who are like, you know, I'm not really sure how I feel about January 6th. I'm not really sure how I feel about whether Donald Trump is... Uh, the patron saint of the forgotten man or someone who did a lot of bad things in business in New York. I, I just, I don't think opinions on Donald Trump broadly are moving. One area where that's, a, there's a little bit of, of difference there is actually within the Republican Party. And that's not to say that suddenly large numbers of Republicans have decided they don't like Donald Trump. That's not the case. But we've been asking this question over and over for the last year. Do you think of yourself more as a Donald Trump Republican or more as you know, a supporter of the Republican Party. And Donald Trump still holds the edge on that question. Um, but it's not nearly as big as it was right before the election. Now, part of that's because, again, he was top of the ticket. Everyone's talking about him. But I still think that for Republicans, even though most of them hold some affection for Donald Trump, part of his strength over the party is that there's a vacuum of, of anything else. What does the Republican stand for if not Donald Trump? Who is the leader of the Republican Party, if not Donald Trump? Right. And I think that is something that still has the potential to change over the next few years. Amy, what do you think if he gets indicted? Will it have an impact or just rally his supporters more fervently? Yeah, I completely agree with Krista. We, we're pretty well baked in on this. And uh, if, if anything, I think, I, I don't know that it, it rallies his supporters, but I do think it it only solidifies the view that so many of them hold, which is this whole thing's been rigged from the very beginning. They were out to get him from day one, whether it was Russia or, you know, fill in the blank, other um, uh, attacks on him. You know what? They th This has been uh, a total sham. So to me, the, the real question is, what does... To, to Chris's point, what what who fills this vacuum between now and 2024? And, you know, folks like Ron DeSantis are trying to fill it. Uh, I know he's getting a lot. There's a lot of energy behind him, especially in the donor community. He's going everywhere, raising tons of money all over the country. I think I think many 
sort of uh, of the more sophisticated donors like the concept of Ron DeSantis, who he has the 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 Trump he can he can pull on the Trump personality, but he can also take it off. He doesn't have that that same inability to sort of discipline himself. Um, but I still think when it comes right down to it, um, Trump is going to look at these election results in 2022. He's going to look and see what Biden's numbers are. And if it looks like Biden's beatable or Biden's not running again, I can absolutely see him running again. James. Okay, well, I'll just make a, a comment because I really want to answer two of your questions on my mind. If it depends on the charges, and it also depends on the trial. And if it, they're not going to indict him in Manhattan unless they have almost an airtight case. And they're going to push for a speedy trial. And when people see, and you can say, well, it's rigged, it's New York. When people see people like them making a decision on something like that, I, I think it'll have a, 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 an effect on public opinion. But I, 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 I want to take this aside because I, I really want to ask both of you this. So uh, it, political journalism and political consultant, which you two represent at the very high end of it. And, you know, Al and Judy certainly represents, you know, women in, in, in political journalism. I think Mary very represents the early pioneer of women in political consulting. So the two of you who, who have reached the pinnacle, when, if, if, if young women come to you, do you think the environment that they would enter today, how much more favorable and how much more opportunity do you think women have today? Because when, when I, and I've been doing this since, you know, 19, the late seventies. And there were just, there just wasn't, wasn't that many women managers, pollsters, you know, some journalists, but not anything like you have today. And so just looking back on, on your much shorter than my career, in one of you just start and you see the direction I want to go in and just tell our listeners about what it's like. So I've been very fortunate in that I can count on one hand the number of experiences where, for instance, I was going to go moderate a focus group. And when I came in the back room, the client was apologies to crusty old white guys, but a crusty old white guy who thought I was supposed to be bringing him coffee instead of the one who was conducting the research. But again, I can count on like one hand the number of times that happened. I wish that it was zero. Um, but I, I do think that nowadays I don't view there as being significant hurdles to being a young woman. So, I mean, certainly not in, in the fields of polling and data. I mean, the numbers, the numbers will speak for themselves. Um, and you've... Uh, Amy, I don't know if you have like have a different take on this, but I mean, I think, for instance, take something like the NRCC, the Republicans organization that runs, you know, House campaigns. I think of the Liesl Hickey. I think of Parker Polling. I mean, I can there are women that have, have run these groups and not not because somebody needed to. Oh, well, we just want to say that we're we're good about women. These are women who they know their stuff. They know how to get people elected to the House. Um, and, and that's just two names out of many. I mean, I could I could list. And so I, I think that for young women who want to get into this field, don't be. Don't be afraid. I have I have found it to be, uh, you know, it's a tough field, but it's it's one worth getting into. All right. So, um, Chris, and I don't want to give anything away. I, I think I'm like significantly older than you are. But um, so uh, <laughs> I'm significantly older than you. So. Well, 
So when I You're in the middle then, Amy. Okay, fine. I'll be in the middle. <laughs> and um when I started, it was uh the roles for women in campaigns were the following. The ones where there was hard actual data or dollars. They were fundraisers, they were pollsters. Very few of them were media consultants, very few of them were managers. Um, very few of them were pundits, right? Because that was still, and I would argue still slightly, le- it's not as hard leaning now as it was then, but those professions that do not come with the hard data, but come with the more, here's my opinion, here's my creative thinking, I'm just going to put this out there, are places where men will still be more dominant. Is there a female equivalent of Fred Davis? There's no equivalent of Fred Davis. No, there's no female. <laughs> but listen, how many women media consultants on your side are there? So I, I, I think you are right that there are certain pieces of the political industrial complex where there are just fewer women. Um, and and I would say even there's, you know, I know Kellyanne Conway is a, a polarizing individual these days, um, but she gave an interview once where she had a really interesting observation where she said, you know, anytime I'm on a polling project and I'm partnered with a male pollster and they're trying to divide up who gets to do what part of the work, I always get assigned the focus groups and the male pollster always gets assigned the quantitative stuff. And I thought, you know, I feel like that happens to me from time to time, but I also really love focus groups. And so maybe, like, I don't know whether this is just, it's a bias toward, well, let's give the woman the the verbal touchy-feely part of the work, or whether it's that I'm actually really interested in, in that and, and love it. I mean, I love the data side too, but that, that always sat with me as like, the, you know, is there some kind of bias here that, that I'm actually just not perceiving, but is very real? I think it's a lot better. And look, I think, and I don't know as much on the Republican side with the, the campaigns, but I do remember maybe it was 2018 or 2020 where all of the major Senate races on the Democratic side, the managers were women. So that to me was like a big break, a breakthrough moment uh, for women being at that level where they could literally talk out their butts in the same way that men have talked out their butts for all these years. And it was okay, right? They could say like, this is what we're gonna do. I'm just talking out loud. Uh, That again, women had to come to the table with something, right? Here's how much money we have. Here's what the data shows. Here, it could never just be, this is my opinion. This is what I think we should be able to do. And I think more women are doing that now. And Kristen, you're of that generation that's coming in saying, but what if I want to be the manager? I don't want to raise the money. I don't want to be the field director. Um, I'm going to go do, right, whatever I want to do on this campaign. So I do think it is it is getting better. I think to your point, too, about the NRCC, again, when it first started, I didn't know any women over there. And so for the last few cycles to have women in big, prominent roles, whether they're executive director, they're, they run the comm shop, all of that, um, that's been a big change, too. James, let me just pick up on on the journalism business, which you alluded to. You know, shortly um, uh, before you uh, became James Carville, <clears throat> there was a book written about campaign coverage called The Boys in the Bus. That would be a ludicrous book to write today because it's changed so much. I'm sure there's more to, to, to do, but the former executive editor of the New York Times was a woman. The editor now of the Washington Post is a woman. 
the bureau chief of the, um, uh, of the New York Times uh, is a woman. Uh, Gwen Eiffel and Judy were the first women co-anchors. <clears throat> I'm sure there are, I'm sure there's still biases. I'm sure there's still places to go. But boy, Amy, I think you would agree the journalism business has changed profoundly in the last 30 years. Profoundly. And, you know, one of the the slowest places of change was the sort of the Sunday show format. But even that has gotten, um, you know, there's a little shakeup there. Um, but, yes. So Margaret Brennan is the only anchor. Of the, right? She is still the only anchor, right. but at least it is. <clears throat> One, <laughs> yeah, First. and Martha Raddatz from, from is is very frequently. Well, she's terrific when she yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I uh, do remember the co. I think yes, I, I do recall a few years ago um, where there was one weekend, and it may have been a, a Fourth of July or Labor Day weekend, where one of the big shows had an all female panel, and kind of made a, a big deal about it. And I actually feel like now it happens, and people don't make a big deal out of it. Exactly, much, which that's that's victory for me. <laughs> Well, so, I also want to I, w- I want to point out for all you please watch Politics Monday on PBS. I don't see any uh, any males around there, Amy. No, there's not. Um, <laughs> but you know, um, Al, I and, I and I remember being on the road with you in the in the olden days on the campaign trail, and you'd have these embeds, and you know those are the young hotshots who. Uh, work basically 27 hours a day for one of the networks covering an individual candidate throughout the entire process. And that was always seen as a great stepping stone to bigger jobs at at a network. And I think it was in 2012 where so many of those jobs went to women. And I thought that was a great breakthrough, except what I worried was that they were going to do all this hard work. It's really so much of that work is miserable (laughs) and weren't going to get the payoff. But what I was excited to see, especially after the 2016 election, after 2020, so many of these women, they did the, you know, the unglamorous job uh, of being an embed and then actually have seen the rewards, right? It, it, they, they have come up through a process. Yeah. The big challenge we have uh, is there are not enough women of color. They're coming. We're seeing um, a younger generation, especially but I feel like I'm seeing, um, you know, I, I'd like to see more women, um, and it's it, it, especially in politics, um, coming through uh, there. But the a, a, as a rule, there you're right. The the number so, of women in those jobs is bigger. James, so, I want to make, make a point. I, I want to okay, make one correction, point. and then have you wrap it up. Right. Uh, I was wrong. This is not the A team. This is the A plus team. So uh, go ahead, go ahead, James. So, and this is anecdotal. It's me, and it could be proven wrong. But I deal with a, I'm a campaign manager, and and I don't. I think women in journalism has shot up a lot. Women in polling, just in dealing with these Democratic campaigns around the country, I find that the managers are overwhelmingly male. Now, this is just an impression. I I I didn't lie to, but but but, okay, so. You know, Bush 41 gets elected, everybody knows who Lee Atwood is. Clinton gets elected, everybody knows who James Carville is. Uh, Bush comes back, gets elected, everybody knows who Karl Rove is. Everybody knows who David Axelrod is. Everybody knows who Kellyanne Conway is, right? Jen Dillon O'Malley, by every estimation, did a very good job when they bought her into the Biden campaign. 
Now, I, I don't know, and I think she has children, and, and, and maybe her interest is not being famous and being on television or, or any of the other things that, that people justifiably accuse me of. But but that seems like, to me, a, a high profile by, by in, in when 10 people said she's really done a good job of putting this thing together, you're almost sure she did a, a, a as competent job as any of the, the more well-known people in American politics. And I, I, I don't know, but maybe women are not good enough at shoehorning themselves on cable television. I, I don't know the answer to it, but the, the mysterious, and, and again, it, it, it may be a choice. She has family decisions to make or whatever, but she's clearly pursued a, 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 a different role in life other than being famous. Yeah. And I think that was definitely on purpose. I mean, throughout the campaign, yeah. she re- she wouldn't give interviews. She was very focused right. on, yeah. I, I, it's not about me. And I think everybody has to understand that about themselves, right, when they get into politics. Right. There are some people who just, they really <laughs> want to do the work. They're not interested in doing the sort of media piece. But I do still right. think, I think it's getting better. But, Kristen, I'm sure this happens to women you talk to, and I've talked to many of them to say, you are so smart please, I want to see you on one of these panels. I talk to you all the time. You give me great data. You give me great information. And then they say something like, I don't know. I mean, they're going to ask me about something I don't know anything about. And I have to you know, study for it. And what if I look stupid? And I'm like, do you understand that? Most of the people on these panels don't know <laughs> half of what you know. Once you learn how cable news is made, it's hard to watch it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> don't do this whole thing of like, but I'm not going to know. I, I, I'm going to need to study for like 10 hours and make sure I know all of the, the details about the Afghanistan withdrawal and how many tanks were left there and what their capacity was. And um, it, again, it's getting better. As I said, women are now more confident to say, I'm going to go on and just bullshit as well as some of the guys do. But I still think there is this reticence that, um, uh, you know, I don't want to, uh, it, to, to to go on publicly without being so well, um, yeah, well versed in it that it's that I almost have a Ph.D. in it. I do think that for women, we feel like the margin of error that we have is is lower, right? Um, and 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 I'm not. I don't want my optimistic comments at the beginning of this to suggest that I don't think sexism exists. I mean, just just this past week, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, joyous news, had her first child, uh, baby son. She only announced that she was pregnant, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago. Honestly, like like kept it very sort of quiet. Uh, won a position in House leadership um, without that news having been been released. And yet she wound up having a local radio host who I don't think is one that was necessarily like overtly hostile to her, but was just like, well, is she going to be able to continue representing us very well now that she'll have this other distraction? I mean, on what planet have you ever heard a, a man running for Congress face that? And this is not some like I'm not pulling some story out of the archives. This is something that happened in the year of our Lord, 2021. Uh, and so it's it's not gone. But I would say for young women, you should not feel discouraged. The doors are ever more open to you than they're more open to you now than they ever have been. And I, I think the progress is only going to continue. And look at the most powerful woman <clears throat> elected official in America. Five children, Nancy Pelosi. 
Anyway, I, I, I just thought, so Kristen and I, we have a secret history. We used to meet in Las Cruces, New Mexico, <laughs> and sent us to Domenici. I don't know, man. I can't, don't, don't tell your husband. I'll never tell Mary, but we, we would go a, a long way to spend time with each other. But I, I, I just cannot tell you how pleased I am that we had this show. And it's it just gratifying sometimes when you can talk to smart people and cover a variety of issues. So, I mean, I love both of you and, you know, good luck to all of you. Thank well, you. We oh, learned, well, we it, it's an honor to be on here. And, and uh, James, I just have to credit you. I mean, the first time any of my research was ever talked about on television, it was you. I actually got a call from my boss who was a little ticked off at me that all of my memos about how Republicans were losing young voters. How dare I write these things that James Carville is going on TV and talking about? So you got well, me in I trouble, talk, but it was Mary's okay. Mary's right here, so we, uh, but I'll tell her we, we used to meet in Las Cruces, and it was fun. I was in a good time. All right. You have come a long way, and uh, boy, I'll tell you, you've been terrific guests. Thank you both very Thank much. Thank you. This Thank was so you. fun. Okay. Bye, Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, James, we have our terrific questions from our listeners Hopefully the answers will measure up a bit to their questions. First one I think is made for you. It's Ahmed in Houston, Texas. He said, moderates in both parties are being isolated by their parties these days. Do you think it's possible for them to band together and form a centrist third party? Well, thank you, Ahmed. Every, the, the problem with third parties is, is everybody wants to design mm -hmm. one that fits themselves. It, 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 one of the things is I, I like and I appreciate I do not view myself as a moderate Democrat. I view myself as a liberal Democrat, right? But I don't, do not view myself as a leftist Democrat. And But I, I, I do think, and I, I enjoy working with the, the people from the Bulwark and a lot of these other people, and, and, and I think that there is somewhat of, if we talk about the great Ann Applebaum piece that you talked about, well, Ann was a pretty conservative person in the 90s, all right? She really was. And, and I do think that there is some, uh, uh, particularly among more educated people, there's some convergence on the idea that, look, all, you know, these are some, you know, infrastructure, climate, issues like this really are so paramount that we don't have that big a philosophical difference. I, I actually think that the best hope is that the democratic coalition sort of holds and people in, in liberals and not, but so far it does all right. The best hope for America is that the coalition holds in liberals dominate the democratic party and not leftist. I, I hope I answered your question well, Ahmed, but appreciate you uh, coming in with it. Good the, question, the Ahmed. Of a third, moderate third, is just, you know, yeah, third, third parties never go anywhere. Uh, and, you know, for all the problems that I find, at least with the Republican Party of today, the two-party system is a stabilizing influence in American politics. Uh, just look at Europe, uh, if you doubt that. But James, next, Drew in Seattle, Washington. Let's go to Afghanistan. Uh, he said, it's been reported the former president pocketed, stole $170 million when he fled the country as the Taliban was, um, you know, a few miles outside of Kabul. Can the United States government find those funds and either freeze them or recoup them 
for the Afghan families being relocated to the U.S. By the way, he adds, uh, I just placed my first order for Magic Spoon this week. I hope it will arrive. Let us know how it is, Drew. Drew, I don't, I doubt we're going to be able to <clears throat> recover that stolen money. It just tells you the sort of people we were dealing with the Afghan government. They were corrupt. And uh, for a guy to desert his country and be stashing money in an airplane, it seemed to be reliable reports, is just outrageous. I I got to do a lot of disclosure here. I know Ashraf. I spent two nights, three nights in his house in Kabul in 2011. I think it might be 2010. He is was a professor at Berkeley and was a professor at Johns Hopkins. All right. Uh, the government was failing. I have read this. I hadn't talked to him. And he did, to, to, to his underlying credit, he reimbursed my plane ticket and sent me a rug that I still have. So I, I got paid for, and he, when, I, when I represented him, or I didn't represent him, when I, I worked for him at the behest of, of people in the State Department, I, I didn't get any money, but I did get a rug. I think when the story of the $170 million is told, and I don't know this, and I, 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 he was always struck me as a highly educated, courteous, gracious person. I, 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 I want to see more. If that is the case, I would be profoundly disappointed in him. But yeah, yeah. Let, let, let's see where it goes. But I, I have many entanglements uh, in Afghanistan because I, I, I spent time there, and like I said, I, and I came out of there with a rug. Well, I'm glad, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know. If, it, if it, those it, stories are true, he could carpet your whole house, James. But, right. Uh, he could, uh, we'll yeah, see. It, right. It Aaron in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, ask a question that a lot, that really is a lot of, goes to a lot of the charges the Republicans are making. She said, over the years, we've released a great share of former Gitmo uh, prisoners to third countries that take them in. Some, and I think it really is a tiny fraction, but some who've been released have made their way back on the battlefield. Uh, and we've seen recently uh, in Afghanistan, are we keeping tabs on some of them, or is this a mess in the making? You know, sometimes cliches are just spot on. And a cliche that is spot on is you can't unring a bell. So once you detain people, even on suspicion, the, the, the Momentum is well. Just keep them there because as long as, long as they had Gitmo, we know they can't they can't do anything. So, but you know, the people saying, "What are you doing? This is illegal," and blah 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 blah. It you know, it is a difficult problem, and I can't tell you how much of a problem they're going to have <clears throat> with who and uh, these Afghans to grant visas to uh, entrance into the United States. Because you know, one time I had a radiologist tell me. He said, I'm not in a 99% business. I'm in a 100% business. I can't miss anything. And so if you let 100, if you let, if you're holding 100 people and 99 of them are being held without good reason and one of them is and you let the 100 go, then you're done. Because that's all you're going to hear about is the one that let go. So it's, it's a sticky wicket. It's a very good question. And is everything else, all I can say, it's just got really complicated. And it's unsatisfactory. I like to be definitive, but it's just complicated. I agree. I totally agree. Um, James Charlie in Sugar Ranch, Texas. Now, I know Sugar Land, Texas. I don't yeah, know Sugar Ranch. Sugar Ranch. Yeah. 
probably but close. Charlie says, Charlie, good point. He said poverty rate has shrunk from 64 to 2020, though the total number of people living in poverty has remained about the same. That's because of population growth, of course. He said, would it not be more popular for Democrats to lean into Nixon and Romney ideas for <clears throat> reforming social programs into direct cash benefits like universal basic income in lieu of uh, women's and infant children's program, housing ventures, uh, et cetera, especially in today's climate of distrust. Charlie, the Nixon plan was really a good plan back in the 70s, and Democrats made a mistake probably by not embracing him. And I think Romney is well-intended. The problem with Romney's proposal, and I kind of like the idea of giving more direct cash, uh, but the problem is that there are a lot of net losers. When you go and you give and you have a universal basic income, but you cut back on food stamps, you cut back on housing vouchers, you cut back on uh, EITC and the and the WIC, and then it's a net loser. I'm sorry, uh, that's bad for people. There may be a way to frame it. There may be a middle ground here, but I think just a straight uh, do away with uh, all those entitlement programs and replace them with a universal basic income has some problems. You know, I. I- I'll probably lean more toward uh, our, our guest that, that wrote in. And one of the things that, you know, what, what, the real problem with poverty is there's a lack of money. And the solution to a lack of money is, drum roll, please, money. All right? Now, I, I understand what you're saying. I love the baby bond proposal. Now, that's not going to do anybody any good, for, you know, until 18 years from now. But there's an old saying Best time to plant an oak tree was 18 years ago. Second best time is now. And I, 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 I do think that if we went to a more streamlined, cash-oriented basis, and I know it's very hard to do it. I know somebody's, and some of these programs have done, you know, marvelously good stuff. But, you know, I, I, I kind of like the Social Security Medicare model where you know, every you know, you don't have resentment of one person getting this and the other not. And I, I, it's it's a complicated question. I see both sides of the issue, but I probably see his side of the issue today a little more than I did five years ago. And that's it was a it was it's a terrific terrific question, Charlie. And write it us was and a tell really us good question. tell us where Sugar Ranch is. Maybe we'll look yeah. it up, but we want to find it. Right. But keep writing. It's a terrific question. Craig in Des Moines, Iowa, says, Gentlemen, I am a lifelong Iowan who's participated in many caucuses. After the last debacle in 2020, I truly believe now the caucuses are antiquated, quaint gatherings from the era of Little House on the Prairie. Iowa should get with the rest of the country and switch to primaries. We certainly have no business being first every four years. James, I, this is to you, but I will tell you my bias I have problems with the Iowa caucuses. I'm a great defender of the New Hampshire primary. Well, again, they did this because they wanted to be, it was an economic thing. Having the Iowa caucuses to Iowa is like having, I don't know, maybe not the Super Bowl, but it's like having a, 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 a significant economic event. And they knew that New Hampshire had, if they put a primary for New Hampshire, the legislature has a law that they got to go first. I, I so so it, it, it really started as a, as a, the chamber of commerce idea actually, and it was such a fiasco. And the, the most dangerous thing in the world is to give a Democrat the power to make rules because they're not going to make ten rules; they're going to make ten thousand rules. 
and, and they just came up with this really convoluted thing that was everybody in the world was screaming about you had to have it this way and it was going to be participatory democracy and people were going to gather and go to one side of the room and and also everybody was going to make a lot of money on it and it's probably at, at the end of the, the end of the day i i i I like being after primary, it's fine. I, I don't quite, you know, I think there's a big argument to be made that it's certainly on the Democratic side. It's hardly representative of what the Democratic Party was. And it turned out that who would have thought that the South Carolina primary was the determinative thing? New Hampshire didn't, didn't, didn't was a fart. Didn't matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't matter. Um, yeah. Uh, but we I don't agree. know. The next time it'll I be agree. something else. I don't want Ann Seltzer or Michael Gardner to hear me say anything bad about Iowa, though. Um, it's not bad about Iowa. It's just no, it's not bad about Iowa. It's, 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 it, it, but, it, but it is. It's as important to them as a Super Bowl is to any, any right. time. It, it's right. really it's huge amounts of money. Absolutely. So that's the problem. Yeah. Leslie in Oakland, California says, do you think states benefit when there's less of a one-party stranglehold in the various chambers of power? I'm thinking of a blue state like Massachusetts, they have super majorities, but they have a Republican governor. Do they keep each other in check? Does one group of rascals keep a good eye on the other? Yeah, you know, as a general rule, Lord Acton's uh, axiom uh, applies. Absolute power uh, tends to corrupt more. But I would just give you two notable exceptions. Uh, one would be Virginia, where Democrats control everything now. And I think they govern with great responsibility. They've had, what, 16 in the last 20 years, Democratic governor. But the other side is North Carolina, where they have that divided power, a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature. That Republican legislature has acted as abysmally as any group in the country. Just this week, they passed a, um, a law banning uh, critical race theory. Now, maybe it can be vetoed. They've taken power away from the governor. They have cheated on redistricting. So I, I think it's a complicated question, Leslie. As a general rule, you're right, but it depends on the particular places and people. Yeah, you know, like Vermont has a very popular Republican governor. I mean, some right. senses fear he might run for the Senate, as does, correctly, as does Massachusetts. In, in, in Virginia's success, as well, point to I'll give you another blue success is Colorado. Yep. Colorado yep. does really well. You know, yep. a well-governed state. I'll give you another one, Washington State. Mm -hmm. and Washington State is very prosperous, you know, very, I mean, it, you know, think of all the companies that you know that are located there, and they have very liberal, progressive government. So they, California, you know, we've talked about this. California is one of the great, not economic success stories of the United States, of the entire world, of the entire world. And, and I think what you're starting to see in California, and I think you're going to see it in Virginia, is we don't want to be like Florida. I, I really think you're going to see that. Yeah, well, uh, boy, I sure don't want to be like far. James, uh, we, we, we have a lot of Texans writing in this week. And this is Good. Bill in Houston, and he Good. says one solution, because we talked about this issue of the Pennsylvania primary a couple weeks ago. One solution in a place like Pennsylvania where you have a Bernie Democrat running against three moderates, well, I think really two two moderates probably, is to have ranked choice voting like New York City primary did this summer. What do you think of ranked choice voting? Something that James Carville rarely says. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I thought it was going to be a fiasco in New York. It, it 
seemed a little cumbersome, but it, 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 the will of the people were kind of served by that. I, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I've just, I've, I've just, I, as much as I, time I spent around politics, I've never given a lot of thought to that. I, I generally find a lot of this experimentation blows up in your face. A lot of people thought it would blow up in our face, like the Iowa caucuses did. It, it actually didn't. And I think it's fair to say that New Yorkers wanted Eric Adams to be their mayor. And that's what they yeah. got. But I, it's, well, I, but I don't know if it fixes much either. I just don't know. I'm with you. I uh, I find it, I'm not sure where I come down. I think there are pros and cons. But I will say the one thing that makes me think about it more carefully is that our good friend Walter Dellinger, who is one of the smartest people either one of us knows and is usually right, uh, is all for ranked choice voting. So if Walter's for it, I want to look at it at least. Now that that persuades me as much as anything. But right. I don't know okay. why I'm right, just because he said it. Keep those, keep those emails and um, um, letters coming in. Boy, these questions are great. I apologize for those that we didn't get to, but they're just so good. Uh, we'll try to get to some of them next week. All right, now for the Outrage of the Week. James, everyone out there should read Ann Applebaum's piece in The Atlantic, on the new Puritans in America, people who are fired or ostracized after allegations of violating some social code, often they're denied any due process. This is prevalent, especially in elite universities and some newsrooms, but it cuts across all political and ideological lines. I want to cite one. Colleysville Heritage High School, outside of Fort Worth, Texas, suspended James Whitfield, its first black principal, after some loud and obnoxious white parents accused him of teaching the critical race theory. Students, students at the school and others came to his defense saying these charges were a misrepresentation. But Whitfield was never, never given a chance to explain what he was really teaching and explain the truth. The protesting parents also objected to a picture on social media. The picture was of Whitefield and his wife, who is white, celebrating their wedding anniversary. This is exactly what Ann Applebaum wrote about. It's Puritan intolerance. It's also racist. It, it's horrible. You know, totalitarianism doesn't always come from just the state. It comes from a lot of different places. And, and th this shoot now, ass later mentality that we're in as a country is, is destroying the social fabric of America. And I, of course, we're both big admirers of Ann Applebaum, and it's glad that people are bringing this out and pushing it forward. We need more and more and more of this. So I, my outrage is, is that Kevin McCarthy, who's a, okay, whatever he is. Don't pick on such a little pygmy, James. Threatening the uh, phone companies, the tech companies, if they comply with a lawful subpoena. I, this has got to be, at some level, prima facie, law school textbook case of obstruction of justice. I, I mean, I don't. I, he, he's. Well, I know he's a moron, but did it, I know they have lawyers to say you're threatening. Are they going to threaten iPhone if they turn over records that are that are subpoenaed by a lawfully installed congressional committee? That stuff happens. A hundred times a day in, in investigations all around the country. And of course, we know why he's doing that, because a, a significant part of his membership, were, were I, in my opinion, I don't know this, but I'm opinion, was aiding and abetting 
desedationist. And I think we need to, to, to see if my theory is right. They need to test it. And, I, and McCarthy's actions reinforced my belief that there were people that were part of this sedacious act that took place. Well, it might even be uh, Kevin McCarthy doesn't want his own records uh, uh, released. I'm I, sure, I don't think I'm that. sure. I'm sure Jim Jordan doesn't. I'm sure a lot of them don't, and I'm sure his membership is mortified. And but but to threaten someone that if you comply with a with a legal subpoena, I, mean, I don't have to be Seth Waxman or Walter Dellinger to know that that there's something that's not right about that. I mean, any lawyer would say, "Man, don't do that. That's crazy." Totally agree. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. We deeply thank you for supporting our sponsors. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.